I was doing a little reading this last week about about what it's like to attempt to climb to the summit of Mount Everest. Um, and no, it's not because I have any wild ideas about doing that. Um, I think a farm boy from Flatland, Illinois probably doesn't have any business <laughs> making that trip. But um, uh, what I was reading was just solely in preparation for, uh, for the sermon this morning. And, and what I found out about trekking up Mount Everest really kind of fascinated me. Um, again, not to the point that I want to try it, but just in a theoretical sense. Um, you know, one of the things that really surprised me was the amount of time it takes to get to the top of Everest. And really, for many people, the, there are years of preparation, years of preparation that, that kind of first begin with scaling smaller mountains all across the world. Um, even once you're getting ready to, uh, to go up Everest itself, there's, there's months of physical preparation to make sure that your, your body is in uh, kind of peak physical shape to be able to make that journey. And the actual trip itself usually begins in uh, Kathmandu, which is the, the capital of Nepal there uh, in the mountains. And so in Kathmandu, you, you stock up on all the supplies that you're going to need for uh, for that trip, and then you take a ride in, in a, what, typically a small airplane to this airport up in the mountains. Once you get to this airport, it's a 40-mile hike to the base of Mount Everest. <laughs> so you get out the airplane, and you've got 40 miles to hike before you even get to Everest, and, and climbers will typically take about two weeks on that 40-mile journey. Uh, part of that is just to get acclimated to the, um, to the high altitude of it. And, and, but, but even after that, you're only at the base of Mount Everest. So you do that 40-mile hike, you get to the base of Mount Everest, and, uh, and there is what is called base camp, which, which uh, sits 17,600 feet above sea level, which just for reference is is the, in North America, there are only five peaks, mountain peaks, higher than base camp at Mount Everest. That just blows me away. In the entire North America, there's five peaks that are higher than the bottom of Mount Everest. So you get there, 17,600 feet at base camp. Once you get to base camp, it's not just a quick quick trip up and back. There's more to it than that. You're typically at base camp for about a month or two. Again, getting, getting used to the climate, getting used to the altitude, and, but, but taking multiple trips up and down the mountain, just kind of a little farther each time, building up stamina, building up energy, preparing for, for that ultimate push towards the summit. So once you're ready for that, and again, this is, you know, <laughs> this is after years of preparation, a 40-mile uh, hike to get there, a month or two at base camp, going up and back. Once you're ready to finally push for the summit, there's camps along the way that you reach. So you, you set out from base camp and you get to camp number one, which is 19,500 feet above sea level. From there, you arrive at camp number two, which is uh, 21,000 feet above sea level. At camp number two, you are higher than any peak in North America. Any peak, and you're only at camp number two at this point. 
So 21,000 feet. From there, you get to Camp 3, which is 23,500 feet above sea level. From there, you get to Camp 4, which is 26,000 feet above sea level. So at that point, you're over a mile higher than any peak in North America. That's at Camp 4. That camp sits right on the precipice of what I thought was so lovingly called the death zone. Again, you can see why I'm not jumping to make this trip. Um, the death zone, it, it, it's called that because once you go beyond 26,000 feet, the, the extreme conditions, the, the extreme lack of oxygen at that high altitude warrant the name. It is, it is the death zone. So Camp 4 sits right kind of at the precipice of that. From there, you've got another 3,000-foot ascent to actually reach the summit of Everest. So a, a trip from Camp 4 up to the summit and back to Camp 4, they say usually requires 24 continuous hours in that death zone above 26,000 feet. You know, the fact that only 5,000 people have ever made it to the summit and returned safely um, is pretty astounding. I, I think it shows the difficulty of the task itself, but, but then the incredible dedication that's required to even get to that point to where you can climb the mountain. There's only a little over 5,000 people that have ever done that. But what was perhaps the most shocking to me as I was, as I was reading these details that went into it, that most guides will only allow their groups to stay at the summit for about 20 minutes. That's it, 20 minutes. It, it becomes really too dangerous to stay longer than that because you're in this death zone and, and you want to get back. <laughs> the, the, the point is to get there and come back alive, right? And so you've gotta have enough energy to get back down the mountain, to especially get back down to camp four. Can you imagine? Can you imagine years of preparation, months of physical training, right, followed by months of getting to the mountain and then getting up the mountain, and you can stay at the summit for 20 minutes? Can you imagine that? I'm going to preach longer than 20 minutes this morning. I mean, that, that just astounds me. 20 minutes. Uh, you know, the fact that people will, will put themselves through all of that just to arrive at the summit for a measly 20 minutes, I think shows the incredible value that is placed on that experience. That's got to be quite the view <laughs> to make it worth it, right, for just to be there for 20 minutes. Well, if, if you can allow me to kind of apply this metaphor to Second Corinthians, I want you to imagine that our journey through Paul's letter has, has been kind of like trekking up a mountain. And today, we reach the summit. I know there's a couple weeks left in the series after today, but <clears throat> today is the, the, what the whole letter is driving to. We, we reach this statement which everything has been pointing towards. So really the summit of the hike through 2 Corinthians is today. The great thing is uh, we get to stay there longer than 20 minutes, all right? And, and you know, the, the hope is actually that we'll stay there not 30 minutes or an hour or, or even for a whole day, but, but for the rest of our lives. Uh, my hope is that, that the, the view, the perspective from the summit utterly changes how we view the world, changes how we view our own lives, 
to the point that we were never quite able to go back to how things were before. And I, I know that's kind of a lofty goal for this morning. I'm putting a lot of pressure on this sermon, I think, as I say that. But, you know, I guess we'll see how it all plays out as we go through this. But before we even get to the summit itself, uh, we've got a little bit of hike left. Paul has a little bit more boasting that he's going to do. If you remember last week, Paul, Paul sarcastically but, but truthfully boasted about all the suffering, all the hardship that he had endured as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And throughout all of those statements, he, he wanted his, uh, his weakness to, to shine through, not his endurance, not his strength, but, but his weakness. Everything that he was talking about was, you know, he said, look, I, I am a weak man and God has provided. So again, the reason Paul boasted that way, he was counteracting the boasting of these false apostles that were in Corinth. In today's chapter, uh, in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul makes another boast again, to, to counteract those false apostles. And I think in the midst of perhaps the grandest boast that he could make, he again makes sure that we are focusing on his weaknesses. So look with me here, Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now, even though Paul is talking in third person at the beginning of this passage, it becomes clear as we go through this that Paul himself is the one who had this experience of heaven. It was Paul himself that, that went to heaven. Again, whether in the body or out of the body, he didn't know. But, but Paul's not describing somebody else. This is him that he's talking about. And, and to be certain, there are, there are all kinds of questions that arise in a passage like this. And, and most of those questions probably center on, Paul, what did you see? What was that like? Tell me about heaven, Paul. What was, what was going on there? But I think we have to be careful when we ask those questions of this specific passage because Paul says absolutely nothing about it. He doesn't give us anything about heaven. All, really, all he says is, I can't talk about it. I am not allowed to utter anything about it. Not a single detail. Even the phrase, you know, third heaven, that he was caught up to the third heaven, that's just how heaven was referred to in that context. First heaven was, was the sky with, you know, with our atmosphere. The second heaven was stars and planets. Third heaven was heaven, like we would say it today, like we would think about it. So even in that phrase, third heaven, there's, it's not like there's levels of heaven or anything like that. That's just how they talked about heaven then. He, he really gives us, uh, he gives us nothing, no details there. 
But one question I think we can ask of that experience in this passage is, why would Paul be given such an incredible vision if he weren't allowed to talk about it? I mean, God, what are you doing there to give Paul this crazy vision and then say, now you got to keep quiet. You got you to keep that to yourself. I mean, I can only guess how many times Paul was asked that question after he wrote this letter. You know, when he came to the church in Corinth, you know there was somebody in the church that said, come on, Paul. You know, you wrote about this experience. Give us something. Man, my, my, my best speculation in this is that that uh, that vision for Paul was a gift of grace from God. It was a gift of grace to help sustain him throughout all the hardship that, that lay ahead in Paul's life. Things he had already written about and, and what lie ahead past this book. And, and you know, I, I think that's in line with what we're going to see Paul say here, you know, once we reach the summit this morning. But but whatever that vision was, Paul only mentions it here in order to put those uh, false apostles in their place. It's the only reason he mentions it. I, I imagine none of them would have been able to claim an experience like what Paul had. But even in the midst of that, that grand boast about being caught up to heaven, even in the midst of that, Paul is, is quick to return to the notion that he himself struggles with weakness just like anyone else. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Again, questions, right? So many questions about this thorn in the flesh. You know, what was it exactly? Paul, what do you mean by messenger of Satan? That's kind of an interesting phrase. And again, none of those questions, uh, that, that's not what Paul has in mind when, when writing this. Rather, Paul circles back to the fact that, that he is a man of weakness. Even though he had this grand vision of heaven, he is a man of weakness, just like anyone else. And in fact, Paul pleaded with God three times to take this thorn away. Whatever it was, you know, we can speculate. Three times, Paul asked God to take it away. And I, and I don't think it's inconsequential that this is the last thing we read before we get to the summit before we get to the high point of the entire letter. I don't think it's inconsequential. And, and what's interesting is it's not unlike descriptions that I read of the hike to the top of Mount Everest. You know, one climber described uh, the death zone, that final 3,000 feet, as a living hell. That's how he described it. He said, you really don't care if you die, if you just sit down and don't go any further. I mean, that, that, that's the mindset that some of these climbers can be in. You know, even being that close to the summit, after all they've already conquered, climbers are faced with a very strong temptation to give up, to just sit down and not go any farther. Man, you know, you, I think you see that here. Paul, three times, God, please take this thorn from me. Please take it away. And, and let me, let me, posit this question for us this morning, just to chew on a little bit. What if God had granted that prayer for Paul? 
What if God had said, okay, Paul, I'm going to take away your thorn? What if that had been the outcome? I'd like to suggest that if Paul's prayer was granted, he wouldn't have reached the summit. The words that we're about ready to read, I don't think he, he, he would have written these words in his letter. I, I don't think he would have got there had the thorn been taken away like he asked. I think he would have fallen just short of reaching the summit and, and making the statement that he makes. So God didn't take away his thorn. It remained. Paul did make it to the summit. So, so let's go with him. Let's walk those last steps to the top if you haven't read ahead already. Let's arrive at that summit and see what, see what Paul has to say, the perspective that is like, like nothing else on the face of the earth. Paul says this in verse 9, and he's quoting God here. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That, that is, that's a summit perspective. That's not a base camp perspective, if we can continue with that metaphor. That's not a base camp perspective. That's not a statement that is made during the smooth times of life. That, that's not a statement that, you know, those words would have never come out of the mouths of those false apostles. Never. They would have never thought about that. But with every, I think with every grueling step of every missionary journey that Paul took, he, he discovered that God's grace was sufficient for him. God's power was always there and, and in fact was shown most perfectly when Paul was at his weakest. Paul discovered that truth at, at the summit. That's, that's the summit statement. And not only did he discover the truth there, but he, he uses words like, like boasting gladly and, and contentment when he's talking about his weakness and, and the opportunity it afforded for God's power to, to shine through him. That, that's the perspective from the summit. God's grace is sufficient for you, for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Now again, if we were on a real hike up Mount Everest, we'd need to be going soon because we're in the death zone and we got to get back down. But this is a different kind of summit, so let's stay a while. Let's, let's take in that perspective. Let's, let's ponder, reflect on, on lessons that can be learned from that type of view, from that type of perspective. So uh, lesson number one, I would say, lessons from the summit here. Number one, when God answers our prayers, he does not always grant our requests. Now, we've, I'm sure we know that from experience, right? We, we can think of times in our lives where we've prayed in a certain way and, and you know, the answer that we were hoping for was not the answer given. Again, if, if God had granted Paul's 
three-time request to remove that thorn, I think he would have missed the summit. He wouldn't have got there. He wouldn't have been able to fully and completely make the statement that he made about God's grace being sufficient for him, God's power perfectly being shown in his weakness. And I would say that that truth applies for us. We're, we're not different than Paul in this regard. If, if God granted every request we made in our prayers, isn't it safe to say that, that very rarely, if ever, would we experience any kind of hardship for any length of time? Right, if we're honest about, about our praying, or at least if I am being honest, right? If, you know, as, as soon as I, I sniff a hint of difficulty, I'd pray for it to be removed and it'd be gone, if that's how it worked. Um, but where would that leave us? Where would that leave us? Uh, you know, according to this journey that we see in Second Corinthians, I think that would leave us at base camp. We wouldn't get to that summit. And you know, you can see the summit from base camp. You're down at the bottom of Everest. You can see, I would assume, on at least on a clear day, you can see toward the top. You know, we'd maybe be able to nod our heads to the statement, my grace is sufficient for you. But we'd never have the perspective and awe that comes from actually seeing the view from the top. If God removed every hardship that we asked him to remove. You know, what Paul's saying in verses 9 and 10, it, it's, it's not just a theological truth that Paul says there. He is describing personal experience. And when we read chapter 11, we read about everything that he had gone through. And then he adds to it this thorn in the flesh. It is personal experience that he speaks from here. It was an experience and a perspective that only came as he trusted God in the midst of his weaknesses trusted God again and again and again and again. And so, I, you know, all that to say, I, we ought to come to God with our concerns. When we face difficulties in this life, the first place we ought to go is to God, is before the throne of our Savior. We ought to go there first. So please don't hear me say that we shouldn't pray in the midst of our difficulties. We absolutely should. But as we pray, as much as ever, I think at the end of the day, we must pray for, for the grace to possess the attitude that Paul shows here. And I would say that Jesus showed as he prayed in, in the Garden of Gethsemane as well. I mean, Jesus was facing his own death zone, if we can call it that, in Gethsemane, a literal death zone. And I don't think it's a coincidence that as Jesus approached that death zone three times, he prayed the same thing that Paul did, didn't he? Three times Jesus said, please take this cup from me, Father. But how did Jesus end that prayer all three times? All three times he said, God, may your will be done. Not my will, but may your will be done. I think Jesus recognized the same type of thing that, you know, there's this summit coming and we don't get there through the removal of any and every hardship that we would ever face. Uh, some of us have faced intense, intense difficulties in the past. Some of us may be facing intense difficulties right now. Uh, 
Some of us may have intense difficulties in our future that we have no clue about at this point. And some of us, that, all three of those things might describe us. In the, in the midst of those, we ought to come to God in prayer. We ought to bear our soul before him. But if he doesn't answer our prayers in the exact way that we desire, we shouldn't assume that he hasn't heard us. We shouldn't assume that he doesn't love us. In fact, he does hear us, and, and he does love us, and perhaps what he wants is that we don't just gaze at the summit and be able to nod our head with a statement like this, but to actually know from personal experience that his grace is sufficient all the time. Every, I mean, no matter what, no matter what we go through, because that's the view from the top. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how, how difficult the journey is, you know, no matter how tough it is to put one foot in front of the other, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient through it all. And we only know that from experience when we're at the summit and we look back and we see what God has done. Now we can, you know, we can, we can know that in an intellectual sense and we can hear others share their stories. And so, so, you know, we can have a confidence in that, but the personal experience that Paul had here, it was a personal experience. It was, it was his experience, his perspective from the summit. So I, I, I think that's, that's the first lesson that we take from that. If, if God does not answer our prayers in the way that we desire, in the way that we've been pleading with him to do, it's not because of lack of love or lack of concern. Not a bit. The second lesson, uh, incredible experiences while they're incredible, are, are no substitute for character, for faithfulness, for daily obedience. Paul had this incredible vision of heaven, and, and honestly, that vision had the potential to derail his life. I mean, he kind of hints at that, right? To keep me from becoming prideful, I was given this thorn in the flesh. So that, that could have derailed his life. You know, he had this vision of heaven, you know, he talks about 14 years ago, and so it was probably soon after his Damascus Road conversion experience, but before he started all of his missionary journeys, he had this vision. What if Paul had taken that vision of heaven and said, ah, yeah, that's good. I think I'll rest on that. You know, I think that's enough to just get me through until I actually go there, until my life here on earth is done. I mean, what if he leveraged that experience for the rest of his life? What if instead of a, a proclaimer of the gospel, Paul came this guy who had a really good story that he went around and, and told? Right? I mean, what if? I mean, I mean, what if Paul had had that vision today? I mean, today, the, the traditional path, if you would have that kind of vision, is you write a book about it, and then you, you, know, you probably go on some radio shows and talk about it. And, and then you probably write a sequel to the book. And then both of those books get, you know, get turned into Bible studies. And, and, then, and maybe if everything goes well, Jennifer Garner stars in the movie of, of your story, right? I mean, that, and I'm not trying to discount experiences that people have, but, but the fact that Paul seems to talk 10 times as much about his suffering as he does about this experience that he had in heaven— I think it ought to tell us something. Uh, you know, 
incredible experiences are a gift of God's grace in our lives. I, I think that's what we're led to believe here, but, but they're no substitute for, for character, for, for faithfulness, for daily obedience. Paul didn't consider himself more holy than other people because of this experience that he had. He, he didn't expect the red carpet to be rolled out when he came into town because this was Paul, the guy who went to heaven that one time. Instead, he was faithful to his calling. Uh, he consistently acted with humility, and he sought to proclaim the message of Jesus everywhere he went, not the message of, of his own individual vision. You know, when you think about it, Paul's incredible vision of heaven is not the summit of this letter. It's, it's not the summit of his life. It was the daily experience of God's sufficient grace poured out upon him. That's the focus of the entire letter. And so, you know, if we're honest, there's probably, there's been times where we long for, for a, an incredible spiritual experience of some kind. Maybe, maybe we're not always thinking, God, I, I want to have a grand vision of heaven like, like Paul had. But, but there might be other times, you know, where, you know, we're, we're talking with a friend and we hear about a, a, a mission trip they went on and, and, you know, some miracles that happened there. And God, oh man, I would love to be, see something like that, be a part of that, or, or, or a co-worker's dramatic uh, story about a dramatic conversion where, where they got to play a part in it. I mean, there's times where we, where we, we long for those incredible experiences. And I don't think we should, you know, do everything we can to avoid those things. I'm not saying that, but but I think we do have to realize that life is about more than those incredible experiences. They are a gift of grace from God. But, but the summit, if you will, isn't reached in one big leap. We don't get to the summit through one grand spiritual experience. It's, it's one step at a time, probably often unseen by others, trusting in God, trusting in his grace, trusting in his power, in our weakness. You know, those grand experiences, again, can be great and have their place as they did in Paul's life, but they're not the summit. They're not the summit in this life. Well, the final lesson from the top, from that perspective, God's strength is powerfully shown through, through our weakness. You know, again, if, if we go back to this hike up to the top of Mount Everest, a person has to prepare themselves. A person has to strengthen their body in order to handle the brutal conditions, especially in that death zone. The summit that we are talking about today is one that a person can never reach from a position of strength. Not that it's harder, not that it's less likely, never. You never reach this summit from a position of strength. We just don't. It's only reached from a position of weakness where we see God's strength being, being poured out, being lived out through us. It's the only way. And so when we think about that, how many times have, have you or have I assumed that our weaknesses disqualify us from God working in our lives? How many times have we assumed that our weaknesses are, are the reason that God can't do something, right? Weaknesses in the area of, of intellect or, or weakness in the area of emotions or, 
or of health or, or, or life experiences or, or anger or, or weakness in the areas of parenting or, or substance abuse or, or relational turmoil. I mean, we could, we could name them all, right? How, how many times have we assumed that weaknesses disqualify us? But what 2 Corinthians screams at us is that not a single one of those weaknesses disqualifies us from reaching that summit. In fact, it sets us up for the opportunity to see the power of God at work in us and through us. I mean, we, we are told the lie that if we can just eliminate our weaknesses, or at least hide them really well so that nobody sees them, then, then we'll be strong. And, and when we are strong, then we'll find success in life. And when we find success, there will be happiness and fulfillment. And it's a lie. It's, it's, it's a bold-faced lie. I mean, I mean, look back, not even just in 2 Corinthians. Look back through the Bible. Find one person for me who reached the summit because of their strength. I mean, one person. <laughs> The Bible is filled with, with person after person and, and, and story after repetitive story of people who found victory through the power of God in the midst of their weakness. I mean, tell me that's not the story of like everybody in the Bible. We can go through the list. I mean, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Samson, Ruth, David, Elijah, Jonah, Esther, Paul himself. I mean, it's, it's the same story over and over and over. God worked powerfully through their weakness. That's, that's the perspective from the top. It's the only way you get to the top. And the only way that you, you're able to, from experience, say what Paul said. God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. So, so how I want to end today, um, if, you, if you have a bulletin, go ahead and grab it and turn to the sermon notes. And if not, you can see, go ahead to the next, uh, next slide, Jacob. Um, if you don't have a bulletin, I would encourage you to either, either write down this prayer or, or snap a picture with your phone or something so that you have it for later. And the challenge is, the challenge is this, um, sometime today, and, and do it today, uh, you know, don't, don't you know, do it before you go to sleep tonight, write down one or two, maybe three areas in your life where you feel weak. It could be weakness in the area of sin, it could be weakness that's physical in nature, it could be weakness that's kind of situational in nature. Um, but, but whatever it is, you know, write that one thing or two things down. And then every day for the rest of this week, pray this prayer and insert the weakness that you listed into the blank there. So God, I give my desire for control over to you. Help me to trust that your grace is sufficient for me. Show your power through me. For your sake, may I be content with your power shown in my weakness. So before we go to bed tonight, 
come up with that one or two things. Odds are we already know what it is. I don't know that we're going to have to sit down and think real hard. We know what our weaknesses are. And then every day this week, I would encourage you at the beginning of the day especially, but, but at some point in the day, to pray that prayer and put that thing in the blank and, and give it over to God. Trust Him with it. Because the hope is that what we, what we saw at the summit, what we read at the summit, right? God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in weakness. My hope is that that is more than a theological truth in each of our lives. My, my hope would be that that is the testimony of personal experience in each of our lives. And I think hopefully praying this prayer each day will, will give us a little bit more of that focus allow us to remember to trust God with those weaknesses. Let's stand and, and come to God in prayer together. <coughs> Heavenly Father, I, I, I give you praise for, uh, for this letter specifically. I, I give you praise for how you worked in Paul's life for how we can can read his his testimony of sorts and see how you worked in, in so many ways you you provided what was needed God that in the in the midst of his self-proclaimed weakness he saw you do incredible things and, and we give you praise for that God not just that it happened then but that you are the same God who who does that now and God, I, I pray for myself first, I pray for all of us as well, that, that we would have that understanding, that we would recognize that, that that summit is only reached from a place of weakness when we give it to you, when we lay ourselves at your feet and allow your power to work within us. God, would you, would you guide us in that? Would you show us what that means for, for each and every one of us? Would you show us what that means for us as a church as well? God, as a church body, that we would give ourselves fully over to you and, and allow your power to be what works in us and through us. We give you praise. God, I thank you that, that we are not disqualified, that you love us, that you pour your grace out upon us. And so God, because of that, now we come to you and we continue to sing your praises. We continue to worship you because of your grace poured upon us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.